Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started. It's uh, 9.32, so let's go ahead and get started. So today we're going to be continuing in our uh, series of questions and answers. Uh, there were nine questions submitted uh, to the elders for us to answer, and so far we have gotten through six of those questions. And so over the next three weeks, this week and the next two weeks, we want to cover the, the remaining three questions that were submitted to the elders. And so these are the three remaining questions that we have. What are your thoughts on double predestination and equal ultimacy? Number two, how does the free offer of the gospel work if we believe in predestination and election? And number three, if there are so many interpretations of the Bible, how can we say that ours is objectively true? And so the question that we're going to be dealing with today is, what are your thoughts on double predestination and equal ultimacy? And so I will preface this um, class by saying this is one of those questions that can be very, very controversial, can be very difficult to think through, um, and uh, so we need, to, we need to approach this question with humility um, and with uh, patience and understand that some of what we're going to be dealing with kind of moves into the realm of what we would call speculative, th uh, speculative theology, Okay. So some of the things we're going to be dealing with, we can't really know the answers to, okay? So we have to understand that before we get into it. All right, so what are your thoughts on double predestination and equal ultimacy? Well, we've got to begin with the definitions of those particular terms. And so double predestination states that God predestines some men and angels unto eternal life, and he also predestines other men and angels to eternal death. And so that would be what's called the doctrine of double predestination, or the theory of double predestination. Equal ultimacy is, states that there is equality or symmetry in God's providential dealings with both the elect and the reprobate. He actively causes the elect to be saved, and in an equal and symmetrical way, actively causes the reprobate to be damned. Okay? Everybody tracking with me there? Alright, so just from the very outset, very, very, very few, if any, that I know of, uh, reformed people will hold to the equal ultimacy. So that's not a view that very many people hold to. Now there are reformed people who hold a double predestination, and some who do not. And so we're going to kind of deal with those questions. I'm going to seek to show um, that equal ultimacy is, is not right, that we don't agree with that, and I'm also going to deal with the double predestination question. Alright. So caution. I've already made a little bit of a caution, but let's continue with that caution. In our Confession of Faith, in chapter 3, paragraph 7, it states that the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence, that's another word for wisdom, and care. In other words, we must handle these doctrines very carefully because unwise handling of this doctrine can lead to serious errors and cause people to struggle mightily to rightly understand the message of the Bible. Some pervert this doctrine, this doctrine of predestination, to deny or weaken the Bible's clear teaching on human responsibility, while others deny or weaken the Bible's clear teaching on the sovereignty of God. These errors can lead to issues like pride, unbelief, doubt, 
the loss of assurance, looseness in living, etc. So it's a very this is a dangerous doctrine to deal with. We must deal with it with very with prudence and with care. However, a right handling of this doctrine is a great blessing to the people of God. Further in that uh, paragraph in our confession, it says, So shall this doctrine, this doctrine of predestination, afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. And so if we understand this doctrine of predestination rightly, as the people of God, it becomes a, a doctrine that is a, a consolation and a comfort to our souls. And it becomes a doctrine that causes us to live in a way that's holy before the Lord. Okay? And so if our view of predestination does not cause that, we're not understanding the doctrine correctly. Okay? So if your understanding of predestination le leads you to doubt and lack of assurance and looseness in your living, then you're not understanding the doctrine correctly. Okay? So, moving forward. The dilemma. The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign and that He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Our confession puts it like this in chapter 3, paragraph 1. It says, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. And so the questions we need to answer from that paragraph in our confession is, when did God decree? So God made a decree. He planned all things, right? When did that take place? Before the foundation of the earth. Right. So before, from all eternity, from before the very foundation of the earth. Okay? So that's when God decreed. Secondly, what did God decree? He, de he decreed before the world began, but what did God decree? All things. Everything. Everything that ha happens or will happen was decreed by God. Everything. Okay? So God decreed that you'd be sitting right where you're at this morning on this very day and time. He decreed that. He decreed what clothes you'd be wearing. He, be he decreed every single, every single aspect of, of all reality. Both the big things and the minute details. He's decreed all things, okay? Including what? We're dealing with the doctrine of predestination, right? So he's also decreed who will be in heaven and who will be in hell, right? He decreed that when? Before the foundation of the world. Now, next question is, because this is an important question, what was God's decree based on? His good pleasure, right? He decreed in Himself by His good pleasure, not based on anything that He foresaw. Uh, you, you've probably heard of the doctrine of the foreknowledge of God, right? And some, some will teach that God looks down through the corridors of history. He looks into the future. He sees what will happen. And then He decrees, He makes His decree based on what He sees will happen. Now what's wrong with that statement? We're in control. That right? God cannot look into the future because God's beyond time. He's eternal. He's eternal, so yeah, he's not looking. He, he is already in the future. But um, further, what happens 
does not determine God's decree. That doesn't make that, that is illogical. What God decrees determines what will happen. Make sense? So everything that happens happens according to God's decree. If things happen outside of God's decree, then God's not in control of what happened. He's reacting to something that happened. Make sense? That's not how God's decree works. God plans and decrees all things before anything was. And then all things happen according to the plan or the decree of God, including <coughs> salvation and damnation. Okay, so therefore, we rightly conclude that both salvation and damnation are included in the all things that God has decreed. It was decreed before the foundation of the world who would be eternally saved and who would be eternally punished. Isaiah 46.10 says that God, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, all of my decree. Everything that I've planned will take place and I will accomplish that. So if this be true then, and it is, then one might conclude that yes, the Bible does teach pre double predestination and equal ultimacy. Now you can see, now, so based off what we said so far, you can understand why somebody would believe in the doctrine of double predestination, right? Or also the doctrine of equal ultimacy. Because God has decreed all things, salvation and damnation, and He works out all things according to His decree. And so it would appear... That if, he's, if he's predestined some to life, therefore he's also predestined some to death. And if God is working all things according to the counsel of, of his will, he works in those who he's chosen to save, he works that they will be saved, and those who he's chosen to be damned, he works that they would be damned. And so there's an equal ultimacy there, right? Well, I'm going to argue against that, but you can understand why people would make that conclusion. So decree and predestination. One of the big issues here is that the term predestination and the term decree often become synonymous in our minds. Okay, what's the word destiny mean? End goal. End goal, right? And what's the word, the prefix pre mean? Before, right? So that's stating... That the end, the end, is predetermined, right? That God determines the end before it happens. Predestined, right? Well, is that not the same thing as decree? What is decree? That God determines what will happen before it happens. That's a decree, right? So, if we just take the word predestined and the word decree, that they're similar, right? But the issue is this. We're dealing with the doctrine of decree and the doctrine of predestination. Okay? The doctrine of predestination is a separate doctrine from the doctrine of God's decree. Okay. So we have, we have seen in, in the confession and from the scriptures that they teach that God decrees all things. However, our confession and the scripture does not say that God predestines all things. Therefore, we conclude predestination and decree are not synonymous. Okay? We see that predestination is a specific doctrine that
that falls under the umbrella of a broader doctrine, which is the doctrine of God's decree. If you would, take a copy of your confession and look at chapter 3. And you'll find that in the back of your Trinity hymnal. If you look... 672. So if you find page 672, uh, locate chapter 3 of God's decree. And look at paragraph 1. Because so this, and as you read your confession, this is a helpful way to understand your confession. Typically, the way the confession is laid out is the first paragraph is the overarching statement of the doctrine that the paragraph is talking about. Does that make sense? So chapter 3 is about what? God's decree, right? Well, paragraph 1 is the broad overall definition of this doctrine of God's decree. And then the following paragraphs are the outworking of that doctrine. Make sense? Alright. So paragraph 1, it says, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. So, Dealing with the doctrine of God's decree. What does he decree? All things. Okay, now notice paragraph 3. It says, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated, there's our doctrine, predestination, or foreordained, foreordained and predestined are synonyms. They're predestined to what? Eternal life, through Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace, and then notice the second part. It says, Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious grace. But what does it not say in that second part? Predestined. It doesn't say predestined. It says, Some are predestinated unto life, but it doesn't say some are predestinated unto death. Now why not? Well, we're going to deal with that. I think the framers of our confession were very carefully wording these doctrines. Okay, Drop down to paragraph 5. First line says, Those of mankind that are predestinated to life. Later on uh, says that he has chosen them in Christ. But you don't see any paragraph where it says those who are predestinated unto death. And so the doctrine of predestination is specifically applied to the elect only in our confession. The doctrine of God's decree is applied to all things, both the elect and the reprobate. But the doctrine of predestination is only applied to the elect, at least in our confession. Okay? Turn to chapter 10 of our confession. Notice paragraph 1 of chapter 10. It says, Those whom God hath predestinated unto life. There's our word again, right? And it's used, it's used for which people? The elect, right? Those who will have life. Notice paragraph 4. Others not elected, although they may, by the, may be called by the ministry of the word and may have common operations of the spirit and, and go on so, so on and so forth, they are not saved, it, it, would, it, it tells us, 
But it doesn't say others predestinated unto death. It says others not elect. Again, very careful language being used by the writers of our confession. If you would at this time turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And let's look together at verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30 states, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then notice the, the chain here. It's called the golden chain of salvation. Notice this chain. And those whom he predestined, he also, what? Called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, it's using this doctrine, this, this term of predestination, to be applied only to the elect. You see that? It doesn't say, if, if the word predestination was synonymous with decree, and God has decreed all things, then therefore that we would conclude, has God predestined all men? Not backing away from the doctrine of predestination, just using the word, okay? That God has declared the end from the beginning, right? So God has predestined all men, right? He has predestined whether they'll be in heaven or hell. He's decreed that. So if the, if the doctrine of predestination is using the word in that way, then we would conclude from this, all people are going to heaven, Right? Because it says those whom he's predestined, who's he, who's that, who has he predestined? If we use the word in that general way. He's predestined all men. Okay? So the word's not being used in that way. The word is being specifically applied to the elect. And it is, to, it is the elect that are called, justified, and glorified. Not the non-elect. The reprobate are not called, not glorified, not justified, not glorified. Okay? And not predestined. So we see a chain. There's a chain of salvation and there's a chain of damnation. And so for the elect, God foreknew them, He predestined them, He called them, He justified them, and He glorifies them. To the reprobate, they are not foreknown. They are not predestined. They are not called. They are not justified and they are not glorified. Yes? Can you explain foreknew? Foreknew here is this, the concept... Uh, if you look at Romans 8, 29, he says, for those whom he foreknew, and so this is not dealing with God's omniscience. God knows all things, right? God, God knows everything. He knows everything before it happens. He knows all things, okay? It's not dealing with God's omniscience here. It's, it's dealing with the fact that God, and it's also using the word foreknew here, is a, is a relational term. God, to be saved means to be known by God. To be not saved means you, you don't know God. God doesn't know you. You have no relationship with God. So this is a relational term. A, another, a good word to, to, to use here before loved. For those whom God has set His love upon, He predestined. And He calls them, justifies them, glorifies them. Therefore, those whom He did not set His special saving love upon, He does not predestine. He does not call, does not justify, does not glorify. Okay? So the word there is dealing with God's 
relational uh, love towards mankind. A salvific relational love towards mankind. Yes? Yeah, I think that that's what Pastor John was wanting to, us to make sure that we understood, is that there's being foreknown in general, saved and, un- and, and, and condemned, but then there's, then there's the loving aspect that you brought up, and I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Uh, you're talking about the elect, and that's what the context in Romans is. Right. Because then it, it would, by saying not foreknown, and if we take it in a literal sense, well then that does not mean, that means that God is not omniscient. Right, and that's not the way the word's being exactly. used. Exactly. That's right. And that's the, where most people misunderstand that verse. Because mm-hmm. we're using that word dealing with God's omniscience and not with, with his, setting his love upon his people from before the foundation of the earth. Right. All right, next slide. Christ came to save elect sinners. Okay? What is the gospel? So, multiple choice here. The message of what God has done to save his elect people. Is that the gospel? B, the message of what God has done to save sinners. Is that the gospel? Or C, all of the above. It would be C. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The very concept of salvation and damnation have a common denominator. Does that make sense? I'll explain it some more. That common denominator is sin resulting from the fall. Salvation is to be saved from the effects of the fall. Our confession in chapter 6 verse 3 states that the guilt of the sin was imputed, that the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed, and, and then as a result of that, our nature, we, we, we receive from Adam a corrupt nature. So a corrupted nature was conveyed to us, to, to all, of, all of Adam's posterity. And now we are conceived in sin. And by nature we are children of wrath. We are the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Okay? Brother? What is, just to explain it, what does that mean that Adam's sin was imputed to us? What does that word imputed mean? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's like a banking term or a financial term. It's, his, the, the, the guilt of his sin was credited to our account. And so we are now therefore guilty as a result of his sin. In the same way in, in salvation, the Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to our account and we are treated by God as if we are perfectly righteous. Okay? Same thing here. Same, same concept. Alright. So, as a result of the fall, all men are sinners, and they are subject to the effects of the fall. And those effects are spiritual miseries, temporal miseries, and eternal miseries. In other words, as a result of the fall... Because of your sin, because of your guilt, you are destined to hell. You are on your way to hell as a sinner. Unless, our confession says, unless the Lord Jesus set us free. And so salvation is to be set free by the act of mercy of God, whereas damnation is to be left to continue in our sin 
and thus receive the just punishment for sin. So this is an important point to see because it shows us that the doctrine of predestination or election is the idea of God setting His love on particular sinners, that's important, and displaying the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then also Romans 5, 8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brother Ryan? Pastor Tyler, so would you say that when God decrees salvation, decrees damnation, but particularly predestined salvation, he does it in view of fallen sinners. It's not like we're a blank slate in the eyes of God when these things happen. Yes, I would say that. And we're, and we're, we're going to dig into it. We're going to dive off into that deep pool a little bit. So now we come to these really big, big fancy words that are really hard to understand and hard to remember because uh, they have like 17 syllables. Uh, so, infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. Really big words, not that hard to understand once you understand what the, what the, how the word is broken up. In the middle of both of those words, you see the, the word lapse, right? Infralapsarianism, supralapsarianism. Okay? So, that the focus of this word is the word lapse. What does the word lapse mean in Latin? It means to slip or to fall. So, it's dealing with something to do with the fall. We talked about the fall already. Okay? So these, these two views, infra and supra, are competing views regarding the logical order of God's decree with regards to election and reprobation and the fall or the lapse of mankind into sin. Both views, this is important, agree that God brought all things to pass according to his eternal plan, that is, his decree. The difference in the views, <clears throat> sorry, is... In the prefix, the Latin prefix infra means after. The Latin prefix supra means before. Okay? So supra is teaching something that happens before the, before the decree of the fall, and the other is dealing with something that happens after the decree of the fall. So first, supralapsarianism teaches that God's decree of election and reprobation logically precedes or comes before his decree of creation and the fall. Basically, the decree to save some and damn others is made logically before the fall, and therefore the fall is decreed as a means by which God's decree of election and reprobate, reprobation would manifest itself or themselves. In this view, God created men to be damned and decreed the fall to make sure that these men would be Damn. And so the logical order in supra goes like this. His, again, we're talking about God's decree singular. It's not that God makes a decree and then later on makes another decree and then makes another decree. That's where people misunderstand all this. God makes one single decree. It's God's decree. And in God's decree, He decrees all things. Okay? And so the logical order in the supra view is that He decrees election and reprobation Otherwise, otherwise known as salvation and damnation. Then he decrees the, fall, the creation, and then he decrees the fall. Okay? The infralapsarianism view teaches that God's decree of election and reprobation logically follows, follows or is below 
his decree of the fall. Basically, God decreed that the fall would take place, thus placing all men under the wrath of God and in need of salvation. His decree of election, therefore, is the selection of certain sinners to save, to display his glorious grace, and his decree of reprobation is God, God's displaying of his glorious justice in the destruction of the wicked. Not blank slates, but the wicked. And so the logical order would be like this. God decrees that he would create mankind, the creation. He decrees that these men will fall into sin by the fall. And then he decrees that of these fallen men that he will save some and leave others in their sin to receive their just punishment. And so that would be the logical order of the infra-lapsarianism view. Moving forward. <clears throat> John Frame writes, Most Reformed theologians have been infra-lapsarianism. The, re the Reformed confession generally expressed themselves in an infra-lapsarianism ways, and this is important, without condemning the other position. So both positions can be held um, and be orthodox and be confessional. So the infralapsarianism position teaches that God, in his decree, singular, chose to create mankind in his image. That mankind would fall as a result of their free choice to sin, that is the liberty of second causes, and that from among this fallen race of humanity, God chooses out of his mere good pleasure to save some through the person and work of his Son, while leaving others, as our confession states, to act in their sin to their just condemnation. Look at your confession again, paragraph, chapter 3, paragraph 3. It says, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated, or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace, and then others are left. Left in what? left in their fallen condition. To act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of His glorious justice. I gave you a handout from the Canons of Dor. So if you will look at that handout. Now what are the Canons of Dor? Well, the Canons of Dor are the result of the Synod of Dort conducted in 1618 and 1619 by the Dutch Reformed Church. This synod was necessary because of the unrest in the church that had been caused by the followers of Jacob Arminius, who produced a document known as the Remonstrance. The Remonstrance presented objections to the teachings of Calvin and the confessional statements of the church at that time. There was the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Confession, or a Catechism. Okay, so these confessions uh, taught the Reformed view of God's decree with regards to election and damnation. Um, and Jacob Arminius didn't agree with those, and his followers certainly didn't agree with them either. And during his life, Arminius asked that a church council or synod would discuss afresh the concepts of predestination, election, and reprobation. However, it was not until nine years after his death when the whole church was caught up with theological debate, that such a council was finally held. Okay, so there was a synod, 
that was held in 1618 and 1619 by the Dutch Reformed Church. And after all their meetings, they composed their views and they wrote them in a document called the Canons of Dort. And, if you, and I've copied for you Article 6 and Article 7 of the Canons of Dort. So we'll look at first Article 6 regarding God's eternal decree. And notice the language they use. They, they say that some receive the gift of faith from God and others do not receive it. And this proceeds from God's eternal decree. For known unto God are all his work from the beginning of the world, Acts 15, 18, who worketh all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11. According to which decree, he graciously softens the hearts of the elect, however obstinate, and inclines them to believe while he, while he leaves the non-elect in his just judgment to their own wickedness and obduracy. And that, mean, that word just means obstinance or stubbornness. And herein is especially displayed the profound, the merciful, and at the same time the righteous discrimination between men, and here it is, he discriminates between men, he elects some and others are left, the reprobate, so election and reprobation, there's a discrimination, a distinction made between men. What type of men? Men who are equally involved in ruin. And so this choice to save some and not save others is from among the fallen race of mankind. Further, it says, or that decree of election and reprobation revealed in the word of God, which though men of perverse and pure and unstable minds rest it to their own destruction, yet to holy and pious souls affords unspeakable consolation. So they're simply saying that this doctrine of God's decree and of the doctrine of predestination and reprobation are consolation to God's people. Article 7, regarding election. They state, election is the unchangeable purpose of God whereby before the foundation of the world he has out of mere grace according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will chose from the whole human race which had fallen through their own fault from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction who did he choose? He chose sinful men. A certain number of persons to redemption in Christ whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. This elect number, though by nature neither better nor more deserving than others, but with them involved in one common misery, God has decreed to, decreed to give to Christ. So who did God give to Christ in the eternal covenant? Who did he give to Christ? Sinners. sinners. Those who had a common misery with other sinners, all that were fallen, from that mass of fallen humanity, God chose specific people out of his mere good pleasure not based on anything good in them obviously because they're sinners right they had fallen he didn't choose them because they were better than the others they had a common misery they were commonly fallen into sin they had nothing good in them whereby that, that would cause God to choose them okay but in his mere good pleasure he chose from among the fallen race of humanity some to give to his son in a covenant of redemption and the Son comes and saves those very sinners. Okay? And that's what the rest of the paragraph states. Look at your confession again, chapter 3, paragraph 6.
Well, I forgot to write down my note I had on that, so let's get. I thought I had a, I thought I had a note written on it, but that's okay. All right, next pair, next slide. Faith versus sin. Is God the author of sin? God has decreed all things that comes to pass. He's decreed everything that will come to pass, right? Including the fall and including the sin of men. But is God the author of sin? No. Scriptures are very clear. Our confession is very clear. God is not the author of sin. You read our uh, confession, chapter 3, paragraph 1. It makes that point very clear. He's decreed all things, yet he is not the author of sin. That's the, that's the charge that, that Reformed people get most often from those who are not Reformed. That we, we are stating that God is the author of sin. No, God is not the author of sin. But is God the author of faith? Yes, absolutely. Hebrews 12, 2. He is the author of our faith. That alone debunks the concept of equal ultimacy. That alone does it. What about passages that teach that God hardens the reprobate? Like Romans 1 and Romans 9. Do those passages suggest that God actively hardens them? They're already hardened. He, okay. he leaves them. Okay. So what does it mean that He hardens them? He gives them over to what they already want. That would be Romans 1, right? Well, think, think of the analogy of, of clay, right? How do you harden clay? You remove the water from it, right? If the water is removed from the clay, what happens? It hardens. And so how does God harden the sinner? He doesn't implant into the sinner sin. He doesn't make the, make the sinner a worse sinner. Doesn't, you see that? He removes his restraining grace from that sinner, and the sinner hardens himself because of his sin. That makes sense? So God is not the author of sin. He's not working sin in to the reprobate. He simply removes his restraining grace from them, his common grace from them, and they harden themselves because of their sin. Okay. On the other hand, God does actively intervene on the behalf of his elect through regeneration, granting repentance and granting faith, justification, adoption, and sanctification. These are all active acts by which God works on the elect. Make sense? So God is active in saving his elect. But in the hardening of sinners, the hardening of the reprobate, God simply removes or leaves those sinners in their sin. Okay, so there's not, a, there's not an equal and symmetrical way that God deals with the elect and the reprobate in that way. There's a difference. The reprobate are left in their nature to do what they do. The, the elect are changed. Their very nature is changed. A miraculous act happens to them. And they're given a new heart that desires to follow after God. Different ways in which God deals with the reprobate and the elect. Not equal ultimacy. Election and reprobation. What does the term reprobation mean? That's, that's an interesting thing. A lot of people don't even know what the word means. What does the very word reprobation mean? If you, actually, if you notice, if you read in your ESV version, I don't, you won't find the word reprobation. So what does the word mean? The word means unapproved, unfit, unworthy. Moving, up, moving on down. Does election save? 
No. Are the elect received into heaven because they are elect? No. If, as a pastor, if a person comes to me and says, I want to be baptized and I want to join the church, and, I'm there, and I'll begin speaking to them, and I'll say, well, why do you think you're a candidate for baptism and membership in the church? And they say, well, I'm elect. Red stamp, denied. That's, that's not, that doesn't cut it. Okay? That doesn't make them fit to be a member of the church or to be a candidate for baptism. That doesn't make you fit to enter into heaven. So what makes a person fit or worthy or approved to enter into heaven? The very righteousness of Christ applied to them, right? They have to be saved. Okay? Election is the plan. Salvation is the actual working out of that plan. Okay, they have to be saved. They have to be justified. Regenerated, justified, adopted, sanctified, and glorified. That's what is required for a person to enter into to eternal heaven. Okay. Now, regarding the reprobate or the non-elect. Are the non-elect sent to hell because they are non-elect or not chosen? No. Or are they sent to hell because they are unfit, unworthy, and unapproved? Yes. If the latter is true, and it is, what makes a person unfit, unworthy, and unapproved? Is it decree or is it sin? Sin. It's our sin that makes us unfit, unworthy, and unapproved. And that's why you go to hell. If you're never made worthy by being brought into a covenant with Christ and having His righteousness applied to you, then you go to hell because you deserve it. Make sense? Any questions there? You know, that's a lot of... Okay. Well, one of the things... This is where people misinterpret this election scene. And some people go on that basis. Don't change anything in their lives. Don't repent. Don't, don't profess Christ as Lord and Savior. But they see, I believe in God and I'm going to heaven. So it's taking it out of context. And, and, and I guess that's the only clarification I'm trying to bring about. Just, just as you talked about, you have to be saved first. So in conclusion, what is most important for us to understand in all of this discussion? We must realize that our only hope of salvation is that God in Christ by the power of the Spirit would take us who are unfit for heaven because of our sin and make us fit by forgiving us of our sin and granting us the very righteousness of Christ. The Bible is clear that the only way to be made fit for heaven is to repent of our sins and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he has revealed to us in the gospel. So in a real way, all those who are lost are reprobate in the sense that they are unfit for heaven and thus headed towards destruction unless God intervenes. That will be our confession in chapter 6. Unless God intervenes on their behalf and the ordinary means by which God intervenes is through the proclamation of the gospel. And so may we be faithful 
in our obedience to the gospel and in our proclamation of the gospel. All right. Brother Rick, would you close us in prayer? Precious Heavenly Father, 